Um, I think this chapter will be just a couple weeks, but there's a lot of important things that happen in this chapter, in chapter 11. Of course, we know that it's the, the chapter where Lazarus is raised from the grave, and it also speaks of When we think of the resurrection, the first thing that comes to our mind is Jesus' resurrection, which is the most important aspect of what we're seeing and what we will see specifically next week. Because Lazarus is being raised from the grave was just a, it was just like a week, just a little more than a week, probably right on the money, right on like a week before Jesus would be crucified. And so it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would ultimately accomplish and, and, and so much more than even what happened in Lazarus's life. And we'll take a look at that next week. But what I really am hoping to do today is to just look at a specific... We're going to go through the first 16 verses of this chapter, but there's one verse specifically I want us to really zero in on, and that's in chapter 4, where Jesus says uh, concerning Lazarus that this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And that's always a hard thing for us to understand, the idea that God could be glorified in and through something that is uh, difficult, whether it's a, a sickness, a death, or a calamity, or some kind of issue in your life, maybe uh, some disaster in your life. How can God be glorified in and through something like that? But the truth of the matter is that he is, that he does receive glory, depending on what we do with that calamity, what we do with that illness, what we do with that sickness. And nobody likes to be sick, and nobody really likes to die. Anybody here that wants to die? I mean, I, I want to be with the Lord, but I don't, I'm not looking forward to the process of death. But God has a purpose in it, and isn't it true? Romans 8.28 says it uh, so pointedly for us, that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. All things that... The, the bad things and the good things, but the bad things as well, right? The bad things, he's, he's going to work those things out for our good if we're able to see it, if we're able to recognize what God is doing in our life, and even especially in the difficult times, folks, because you understand when everything is going well, we all do well. When, when our day is going well, when things are going well in our life, it's easy to give thanks to God. It's easy to be on cloud nine, but it's especially more difficult for us to be submitted to God and to let his glory shine through us when we're going through a difficulty. Because usually when I'm going through a sickness or a malady or some kind of consequence in my life that's unpleasant, I'm like that kid in Walmart who's standing at the candy aisle when the mother says, you can't have that. Your teeth are falling out of your head because of the rot from your cavities. No, I'm not going to let you have candy today. And the kid flops down and has a a seizure in front of all of these people uh, mess in aisle 10, please. Mess in aisle 10. And the kid is writhing like a, like a demon-possessed person, foaming at the mouth, wanting the candy. And then she does what every American mother does. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Here's the candy. No, I'm only kidding. But anyway, we, th- there's reasons behind these things that happen to us. And are they the, are they the result of sin in our life? You know, a sickness that happens to us? It could be. I mean, it's always good to go to the Lord and ask Him, Lord, is this sickness, this thing that's happened to me, is it a result of sin in my life? It's always good to ask the Lord that. And sometimes it may be, but other times it may not. And we've got to be very careful when we see these things happening in other people's lives because we're so quick to judge. We're so quick to look at somebody going through something and go, I knew it. 
they've got this because God is checking them out. God's doing something. You know, they've done something wrong, and therefore they deserve. Hey, it may not have anything to do with that at all. And it would be best for us not to foster that kind of attitude anyway because we just don't have all the information. Are you omniscient? Anyone here this morning online or here personally, is anybody omniscient? Do you know all things? We don't. We, we, we know so little. And there was a time, we're going to look at this today, in John chapter 9 where Jesus uh, was speaking to a blind man and, and the disciple says, Lord, why was this man born blind? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And Jesus said, no. I mean, they were sinners, but that wasn't the cause for his blindness. His blindness was brought about because I'm going to do something in his life at this moment, at this season of his life, for him and everyone else to glorify me as a result, glorify the Father in heaven and glorify Jesus. They are one and the same. And so it's not always fair for us to be pointing fingers because we don't have all of the information. We know so very little. And so this morning as we look at this, uh, we're just going to look at the first 16 verses, but, chat, but verse 4, excuse me, is the one we want to kind of look at a little more clearly this morning. Because God does receive glory and can receive glory in anything in our life. And whatever we do in word or deed, let's do it all in the name of the God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's do it all in the name of Jesus. The things that come out of our mouth, the things that we do, let those things be the things that people can can say, you know, there's something really interesting about this person because, you know, this bad thing has happened to them. A family member has died. Maybe they're dying. Maybe they're sick. Maybe they're terminally ill. And yet they've got this smile on their face. They have no worry. They're not frightened. They're not freaking out. They're not being angry and blaming God. Rather, they're in this wonderful, blessed repose of just saying, you know what, Lord, I'm in your hands. You've allowed this for a reason. I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't even like it. But you've got a plan. And I want to be faithful in that plan. And that is easy to say when we're doing well. But when we're not doing well, can you surrender? And let me, let me suggest to you that that may be the best worship that you could ever give is when you're going through the difficult times and you're saying, Lord, I'm yours. Help me to glorify you in this circumstance, in this illness, in this death in my family, in this death of my loved one, and in this consequence that, I'm, that, I'm, that, I, that I've got. Or, or maybe it had nothing to do with anything of, uh, maybe it, there was no causation for this thing to happen, but it happened to me nonetheless. Because doesn't God cause the rain to fall on the just and the unjust? <laughs> he does. But it's what we do with it, how we look at it, that is everything. That's everything. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Let's open to, um, if you're not already there, let's look at John's Gospel. Let's just read the first 16 verses. Let's read it. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sister sent him, saying, Lord, behold, he, he whom you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but that the glory of God, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? 
And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. And then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought that he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. And then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him that we may die with him. But this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. This raising of Lazarus from the dead is, you remember that it was the seventh of seven signs that John had cherry-picked from all of the events in Jesus' life. John, having written the Gospel of John very last out of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, his, his Gospel was the last one. And remember, there were seven specific things that John wanted to get across, all for the intent of showing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by these things, specifically, these seven signs are miracles. And we're going to look at the last one in the next week or two about Lazarus being raised from the grave. So let's look back at chapter, or excuse me, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This name Lazarus is, Lazarus, is an abbreviated form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God has helped that's what his name means. And Bethany, it was this place just to the, to the east of Jerusalem, about two miles from Jerusalem on the eastern side, southeastern of the Mount of Olives. And this is the location, not only where Lazarus, as we will read today and next week, where he rose from the grave, but it's also the same place that tells us in the next chapter that we're going to be getting into in John 12, where Mary, the sister of Lazarus, she anointed the feet of Jesus with a costly ointment called spikenard, and she wiped his feet with her hair. She anointed his head and anointed his feet and wiped his feet with her hair. It is also the same location where Jesus ascended into heaven after his resurrection, after 40 days of his resurrection. He ascended, it tells us, in Luke's Gospel and also in the book of Acts in chapter 1, that Jesus rose from, the, from that place in Bethany while his disciples looked on. He was ascended into the clouds. And I love what it says. It says in the book of Acts, the two angels, as they were watching him ascend into heaven, a couple of angels says, hey, this Jesus that came, so in like manner, he's going to come back on the Mount of Olives, because Bethany is right on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, on the other side opposite the, where the Valley of Kidron is, where you can see the Temple Mount today. 
It's kind of secluded from Jerusalem. There's a hill. There's, there's Jerusalem from your perspective. There's Jerusalem here. Then there's the Kidron Valley. And then there's the Mount of Olives. And then Bethany is somewhere over here. So in Bethany, it's kind of secluded from all the noise and the hubbub of what's happening in Jerusalem. And that's where this event occurred. And notice in verse 2, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil. And John is, is recalling this event because he wrote this gospel after these things had happened. So he said, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. And so we know that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they were siblings and they lived in the same house. And we know that this Mary was the one that's recorded for us in John 12, where she broke that, that alabaster, that, 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 that flask of spikenard, a very precious, very costly ointment, very costly ointment. And she anointed the head and the feet of Jesus. And we know that this happened not in Lazarus's house, Mary, and Mary or Martha's house, but it happened in the house of Simon the leper, who also lived in Bethany. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 6 through 31, for those of you who are note takers, you can see that that's exactly where it was. This is the, the parallel account of it. Or, or in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. Or in John's gospel, the first eight verses speak of that moment where she broke that flask and poured it on Jesus' head. And I just want to pause here just for a quick second and just talk about the, the, the extravagance of her worship. It wasn't a chintzy kind of worship. It wasn't a convenient worship for her. This was very costly. But she knew that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Messiah, that He's God in the flesh. She broke that spikenard, this, this, this fragrant... Um, uh, plant that is from East India. It's a plant which yields a very delicious and very um, wonderfully smelling uh, odor that the ancients used, either pure or they mixed it with other things to create different types of ointments. But at the, and, and here Mary takes this ointment and she anoints the head and the feet of Jesus not caring about how much it costs. We remember that Judas had a problem with that. He's like, this could have been sold to the poor. And there's, there's another event where this also happens in Jesus' life, but this is separate from that event. There were at least two events where that occurred, where Jesus was anointed with a costly perfume, a costly ointment. But Mary did this one, and she wasn't concerned on how much it costs because, listen, at the heart of true worship is sacrifice. And if my worship doesn't cost me anything, it may, it may be worship, but it may not be. But it's when it really costs us, those are the times that God is pleased with our worship. Because if it doesn't cost us anything, there's real no sacrifice. I'm not really not honoring one who is above me. I'm really not honoring, I, I mean, I can. I'm not saying that all worship that doesn't cost you something is not pure or God won't accept it. I'm just saying this, simply, that when it costs something to us and it hurts a little bit, that's when God really, really takes note of it. Because we're honoring Him above our own selves. And that's why it's always good to examine our hearts. And you know, singing to the Lord is wonderful. That's an easier type of worship. 
And, um, but it's really hard when we don't feel like it. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. You know, sometimes when we get together, I mean, the worship this morning was awesome. It was beautiful. And there are times when I come in, and uh, I'm not necessarily feeling like worshiping. Maybe you've had a bad day. Maybe you come on a Thursday night. That's usually my problem is Thursday nights. <laughs> As, you know, you, you come from work or whatever, and you're just, your heart is not in the right place. And you don't feel like singing. You just, and so you sit there, and everyone else is singing around you, and you're just like, you know what? I'm not going to sing. I, I'm just I'm mad at God. <laughs> or I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like worshiping him. But that's why the Bible calls it a sacrifice of praise. When we worship him, and, and, and I would encourage you to try this sometime when you're not feeling like it. Worship him anyway. When you are feeling in the pit and you're like, you know what, I have got nothing in me. The tank is empty. You stand or you get someplace. You go in a drive in your car, put on the music, you worship, you do whatever you got to do. And you worship him because he's worthy, not because I feel like it. Because when I worship because of my feelings at the time, what am I really worshiping? I'm really not worshiping Jesus necessarily. Necessarily. But oh, how he smiles. And, and see, we think that God's going to accept it if I'm feeling good about it. And I'm singing and the birds are singing and the choir is in tune and the guitars are in tune and everything. Oh, <gasps> And the Spirit of God is moving, and just like, you're just like, you know, you just feel like a wave in a pool. You're just like, oh, I'm just kind of being bathed and rocked to sleep like a baby. Those times are wonderful, and they are worship, there's no doubt. But when I am at the end of myself, I don't feel like it. Would you challenge yourself to worship him anyway? And you'll find, if you just open your mouth, and the devil will say, well, you're just a hypocrite. You don't really feel like it. You can say, you can go away. Because he is worthy regardless of my feelings, regardless of my circumstances. I'm going to worship him because he is worthy to receive it, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of how I feel about it. Follow me? Try it. It's not easy, but let me tell you this, that once you do that, you'll find yourself, your whole attitude will start to change. After you've gotten over your pity party inside and you actually do it, you'll find that you're actually engaging and you're like, oh God, that's exactly what I needed. I needed to get out of myself. I needed to stop looking at me. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> when I stop looking at myself and I start looking at him, boy, everything turns around. All of a sudden, my attitude is so much better. So notice in verse 3, he goes on and he says, Therefore, the sisters, Mary and Martha, they sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, because Jesus was probably in Bethabara, which is in a different location, probably in Transjordan area. And now the sisters send to him from Bethany, and they say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And this word Lord is the, 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 the Greek word kyrios, which means master, supreme master. So they're honoring him. They're saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. And I find it interesting that Lazarus' sister, Martha and Mary, they called Jesus Lord, and yet not... And yet some of his disciples, and specifically Judas, never called him Lord. And yet these two women, who weren't part of his disciples and apostles in a sense, here they are calling him Lord. And women, for some reason, women seem to have this spiritual bent to them already. They're, they're just such a gentleness, and it's a wonderful thing. I'm so glad for the differences between the sexes, male and female. But guys, let me exhort you. Women have this, you know, it's very easy for them to be spiritual in a sense, but it's, it can be a little more challenging for us. 
But don't let that be your excuse. Real men love Jesus. Real men are serious about prayer. Real men are serious about character and integrity, morals, Bible study, and being obedient. And they don't just cave in to whatever the other guys are laughing about or doing. And that's a real challenge to us, guys. We have to break through the stereotype of men and realize that real men are, is what I just described. A real man can cry. A real man loves Christ. A real man goes to Bible study. A real man goes to prayer meetings. A real man is sensitive to his wife. The world has sold us a bill of goods, guys, saying that a man has to be the guy with the gun with the pickup truck with the dog in the back seat, drooling all over it, drinking a beer, looking at women as he drives by. That's the stereotype of a man in America. And let me suggest to you, that stereotype is wrong. It's wrong. Don't buy into it. It's a cultural thing. You have to discard it. Get rid of it. Be a man of God. A real man loves Christ. A real man surrenders his life to Jesus, is obedient, and is faithful to his wife, to his kids. A real man is faithful to Christ. And all this other nonsense, flush it. Flush it, guys. Don't allow your wife to be the spiritual head in your family. She'll take that. She'll be the spiritual head if you're not. So you better wake up. Guys, let's do it. Is it easy? It is not easy, but God has called us to be the leaders in our home. It doesn't mean that we're better. Your wife may do it a lot better, but he hasn't called your wife to do that. She's got other responsibilities, other things that God has called her to do, but he's called you to be the head and not the tail. It's time that men rise up in the church, in this culture in America, but especially in the church. Verse 4, it says, when, these, when Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified in it. And this is where we're going to park for the most of our time this morning here. Because most people, when they get sick or become terminally ill, they, they think to themselves that they're done, they're finished, game over, my work is done. And, and that is not true for the believer. In fact, it's sometimes, as I said earlier, it's in our sickness, in our malady or difficult circumstances that God can be the most glorified in our life. So how is it that God might receive glory? How can he receive glory? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let me read something to you. You can write these down, these scripture references. You can look at them later, but let me read them to you. Paul knew something about this. He said, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that, I'm, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. There it is, right there. My strength, how can God be glorified? My strength is going to be made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul said, Most gladly I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. For what reason? For Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understood this. And it's something that I'm continually, continually learning, and we need to learn as well. And to continue to learn this idea that, you know, when things go, how is God glorified in my life through these things? 
When I am weak, is he strong? Or am I throwing myself on the ground with a tantrum? And everybody's looking at me, my family and friends going, man, he is a, he's just a, I thought you knew Jesus. You look like a, a, a spoiled, rotten kid at Walmart. What's the matter with you? Is Jesus your Lord or not? And here you are, and, and, and he knows this happened. He might even allowed this to happen in your life, and yet you're, you're getting mad at him, and you're angry with everybody else around you. You're just a mess. You're like a mini tornado. Have you been like that? I know I have. <laughs> but it's in those times that I need to be aware of God's presence and saying, Lord, what are you trying to do through this? Help me to get around this. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, Paul says, For though he was, speaking of Jesus, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. I love that. So now Jesus receives the glory, not me. You see, when God's grace is at work, we can be in great pain, discouragement, and yet not complain and still trust the Lord, even in the most difficult of times. And don't give up. Don't give up. I just had lunch with Steve Spazano this last Friday, and we were sitting talking. And pray for him. He's in the process of, he's probably, they're going to have to amputate his finger because of uh, gangrene. He's a, he's a diabetic, as you know, and so he... It's looking very possibly that they're going to have to amputate that hand, or not the hand, but the finger, and that's going to change things for him. And he's had to deal with this whole thing about the things that have come upon him and his sickness and how it's kind of taken him away from the things that he loves the most, which is being out witnessing into the, into the community. That's what he and some other gentleman with him did. But now, you know, Steve is approaching this thing with such a wonderful, in a wonderful way. He's like, you know, I'm not going to pout about it, he says, I need to, I need to find, well, Lord, what can I do now you know, that I'm in this place? You called me to be here. I'm here, and you've allowed this to happen in my life. What can I, how can I serve you? How can I, be, how can I glorify you in spite of my physical limitations? And I tell you, the guy is amazing. Had a great time of fellowship with him last Friday. For a couple hours, we just sat there and talked about the Lord and ate lunch together. It was wonderful. And the Lord is not done with him. The Lord has made promises to him. So don't give up. And know that we walk, that we need to walk circumspectly. What does it tell us in Ephesians? It says, See then that you walk circumspectly, which means carefully, not as fools but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. See, people, I believe that word circumspect also certainly were to walk carefully, but I also think it means the very obvious. Circum means around and spec means to see. All around us, people are watching us. We live in a fishbowl. If you're a Christian, you're in a fishbowl, whether you like it or not. People are looking at your life and they're seeing if the validity of your faith adds up to what your mouth speaks. Because I can speak a great game, but it's when everything starts to fall apart, that's when the reality of my walk with God shines through. And we, 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 can't, uh, we just got to let him do it. Lord, do that work. Do that work in us, in me. Surprise me, Lord. Do the work, work in the basement of my heart so that when I am in that place, I can be, I can have the attitude of Steve Spazano and others, many others that are suffering too. But people are watching us and they're seeing what we're going to do. They're going to see if we're going to talk the talk. And it's important because if we don't practice what we preach, we will lack the authority and the credibility. So why would anybody listen to us? Let's just ask the Lord now. Say, Lord, 
Prepare my heart for whatever comes ahead. Help me to always acknowledge you in the good times and in the bad, especially in the bad, because when the good times, it's easy to acknowledge you. But especially in the bad times, Lord, help me acknowledge you. So how is it again that God might receive glory? Remember, as in John chapter 9, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples said, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. And this is exactly what's happening to Lazarus. For the glory of God, this is happening. God waited. Jesus waited when Mary sent the message, You're, the, the, the one that you love is dying. And Jesus knew about that. And the Bible says that he loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He agapeo, agapeo. That's the the highest form of love in the Greek language. He loved them, but yet he just stood and waited. Really? You really love me and you do that? There's a bigger purpose behind all of this. How is God, how might God receive the glory and your malady, and your illness. Well, when God does the miracle, and the cancer is found when it was consuming you, and now it's gone. When the doctors are all confounded and telling you to go home and get your affairs in order, and then God does a miraculous healing, and then he gets the credit and not the doctors. And I've seen this happen. In this church, people have gone and had x-rays. All of a sudden, whatever it was, was gone. They've had the blood work and it's gone. People have been praying and something has happened and it's gone. These things have happened. God is glorified. God is glorified. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. You know this event very well. And let me suggest to you that Job is not an allegory. He's a real person. If you read the very last few verses of the book of Job, you realize that this is not an allegory. This is not a fake person. This is a real person that this happened to. Notice, there was a day when the sons of God came to present, this is verse 6, excuse me. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered and said, well, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord, notice, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on all the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job, Job, get a job? No. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the man's work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, you know, it's, can I just say something? It's never good to challenge God. It's folly. You'd think that Satan would know this. I mean, he, Satan is a created being, by the way. He's not equal with anybody, okay? God is all-powerful. Satan is a created being. That's true. It's biblical. We can look at that. He's a created being. He knows that God is omniscient. So what, him challenging God, this is the insanity of sin. When sin gets a hold of a person, they, they, they don't think right. It's insanity. It's insanity. That's what it is. And Satan is insane. Touch, you touch him, touch his possessions, and he will surely curse you to the face. Ah, and God is going, oh, 
You think so, huh? Well, I know something that you don't, Satan. I know Job's heart. You can't see his heart, but so be it. The game is on. Now, that may make you feel a little awkward, but God allows us to, be, to go through things, and perhaps that conversation is being held in heaven when Satan approaches the throne of God and says, Have you considered my servant Rob? Yeah, he's an idiot. <laughs> and I'll show you how much more of an idiot he is. I'll let you, you know. Things happen to you. Could it be that the Lord is allowing it to reveal something, to allow your life to be on display, that God might be glorified, just as in Lazarus' life, that God might be glorified? Because I don't know what I'm going to do when I'm confronted with a circumstance or something in my life. I don't know how I'm going to respond. I really don't know. If anyone here thinks that they know exactly what they're going to do when something happens and their response to it, you better go back and pray. Because I'll be honest with you, I'm surprised at how little I know myself. I can talk a big game, but when it really comes down to the brass tacks, I find, oh my goodness, I, I didn't think I was, I, I wasn't as brave as I thought I was. I didn't have in me what I thought I had. And God allows us, see, He knows that. I don't know that, but He allows things to reveal that to me so that I can be humbled. And then I come to Him and I say, Lord, I, I don't have anything. Help me. And he's like, oh, Rob, I knew that. I knew that all along. But there's no other way for me to reveal that to you than to allow you sometimes to be confronted with these things. I don't enjoy it, but son, do you understand? Daughter, do you understand? There's just no other way. So I have to allow it that you might know. So... The balance of the chapter, Job loses all of his livestock. His, all ten of his children are killed by this onslaught of Satan through various physical means and supernatural means. Now turn with me to chapter 2, verses 1. It says again. Now this is again. So Job, he, all these things happen, and he did not blaspheme God. So Satan comes to the Lord again. And it says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And Satan answered, and the Lord answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Again, have you considered him? Look at him, you've taken everything away. Have you considered him? Consider him again. Take a closer look, Satan. There's something in this man that you don't see. My relationship with him is much more solid than you think. He's a blameless man, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered and said, Yes, yeah, skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life. Notice that he's on a chain. He's not a free agent to just go out and destroy. No, he has to go by God, because all, every, every person belongs to God ultimately. And only the things that God will say, I will allow it, but to this level and no further. And he has to obey. God, can, God has the ability to trump him. He has the ability to checkmate him very quickly and very easily. He is on a leash. He is not a free agent to just go about destroying 
So Satan went from the presence of the Lord and, they, and struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took for himself a potsherd, which to scrape himself when he was in the midst of the ashes. And his wife, notice this, what a comforting wife. Why don't you just, why do you hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Thank you, honey. You know, you're just the epitome of a Proverbs 31 woman. Such a wonderful, just full of joy and exuberance and always encouraging. <laughs> Curse God and die. Let's get this on. Just die. Love you too, sweetheart. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Notice, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. God knew the faith and the character of Job. Job didn't even know it, and certainly Satan didn't know it. So God used Job's life. As he's going to use Lazarus's life for his glory, he used Job's life for his glory as well. All the calamities, all the sickness, all of these things, God was going to reveal his faithfulness and his healing and also put Job's faith on display for all the angels to see, for Job himself, the demons, and Satan. And Job had this wonderful testimony in chapter 19, verse 25, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. And here, and this is kind of interesting to tie in with what's going on in Lazarus's life, because now Job is, is prophesying of something that hasn't even occurred yet. Job was aware by the Spirit of God that there was going to be a resurrection, that Job himself would stand in the presence of God with a new body. Not in the flesh that he had that was decaying in front of him, but he knew that he would spend an eternity in the presence of Almighty God in his flesh, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Doesn't your heart yearn for Jesus? I am ready. <laughs> There's nothing on this earth that I'm like, oh, Lord, don't come yet. You know, young people, you know, teenagers are like, you know what? I don't want the Lord to come yet. I want to go to school. I want to graduate with, you know, magna cum laude. I want to I have that really high-paying job and drive that nice car. I want to know what it's like. I want to be married and maybe even have kids. I want to know, you know, and I get it. And that, those are good things but they just don't understand the reality of what's coming. <laughs> they don't understand, and we often don't understand. There's nothing that's more important, nothing more glorious than to be in his presence. I can't wait for the, for the, the trump to sound. Lord, is there like a, a, a preview? Can you just do this now? And I want to go. There's nothing on this earth that I'm excited about. Seriously, nothing. Even if it was a utopia, there's nothing. Life is wonderful, don't get me wrong, but we don't long for him because we don't understand what's going to happen and the beauty and the glory of it. And in Job 42, verse 5, he says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Do you, do you see that what's happening here? Job has witnessed. He's been through this. 
Lazarus is going to experience the same thing. He's like, you know, I've heard all this stuff about you, Lord, but now I know. I've got, I've got tangible evidence. I've seen it. I've lived it. You know, there's nothing more powerful than when you have gone through something. Nothing more powerful when you've experienced it for yourself. You own that truth. You own that, and you can tell it with authority and with integrity. You can tell somebody, listen, I've been through that. I know. I know how devastating that is that you experienced. I experienced a similar thing. Maybe it's not the exact same thing, but I understand in generalities. I understand what it's like to lose uh, someone I love. I understand what it means to be lying in a sickbed and not knowing if you're going to come out the other end. I get it. I understand it. And Job says, I've seen with the, I've heard with the ear, but now I see it. And boy, that changed his life forever. And Lazarus would be changed forever. And even while he himself would be changed, Job and Lazarus, do you understand that everyone else around them is watching them and they're saying, what is the reality of your faith? And all of a sudden, they see these things happening in the life and they're just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I've been going to church for years and I've just been tuned out, but now, oh my goodness, this is what it's all about. This is what it's all about, and I'm seeing it, and oh my goodness, it's right there in front of me. I can't deny it. What a great and wonderful thing to know experientially these things. And these two men certainly did. And ultimately, in the end, God would bless Job with twice that he had. In chapter 42, verse 10, it says, The Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Indeed, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had for all the animals, and even the children that he lost, God gave him back double. And it's almost like Job, or God saying to Job, Job, I used your life, and I know you went through a lot, and I revealed to you where you really are. You didn't curse my name. Did you struggle? Yes. But you didn't curse my name. And you know what? It's not for nothing, Job. Because now you know what I knew all along. And everyone around you has, has been witness to what you have gone through. And many of them have come to faith. And if that wasn't good enough, I'm going to reward you. <laughs> Do you realize how insane that is? God allows something in your life, and not only does he use you in the moment to the, to the betterment of many around you, maybe even to the salvation of... I wonder how many people in heaven that we're going to see. I wonder if God would do that for each one of us as we stand there and go, like, God, I had nothing to do you know, with uh, being a witness for you. And God says, oh, wait a minute. Rob, I want you to see something. Or whoever it is, all of us, he'll say, I want you to, to see in your life the impact that you had and the people that got saved as a result of the, plant, of, of the seeds that you planted or watered or led them to Christ. It doesn't matter because it's all the same. I want you to see, look at that field of people. All those people are a result because you did not keep your mouth quiet. You allowed me to use your life, even in difficult circumstances. You allowed me to use your life and do you see that? Isn't that the reward? Look at the field. Tons of people out there because of you. And guess what? I'm going to reward you for it. <laughs> it almost doesn't seem fair, does it? But that's the truth. That's the truth. 
Paul's exhortation was this. He said uh, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, notice what Paul says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, notice, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Oh my goodness. When I think about what I experience and I think I compare it with other people, I realize that my affliction has been light. Some people have been through the furnace. Some people have been to the chopping block. You know, some have been martyred even. And yet I'm complaining because, you know, my Jeep ran out of gas. And that happened the other day, by the way. It's pretty humbling. <laughs> and I complain because I ran out of gas. And yet, light affliction even when I'm going through something. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says to them, For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us, the praise that we are going to offer God because of what He's allowed in our life, as He allowed in Job's life, as He's going to show us in Lazarus's life in the week or two to come. He's going to be revealing those things. And even the martyrs of the church, people like Martin Luther, Polycarp, many others who died horrible deaths, some of of them were like candles that were lit on fire and they were, they, were, uh, they were a spectacle for the guests of others to watch them burn. They were human candles. They were burned at the stake because they refused to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. They refused. They refused the mandate. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be forced to do something. And they were crucified, or they were killed. They were martyred for their faith. What does it tell us in Hebrews? Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. <laughs> The world is not worthy of you, Christian. The world is not worthy. And guess what? None of us were worthy. But isn't it true that while we, God demonstrated for us His love, He didn't just say it, He demonstrated it, He put it into practice, He put it in the very visual terms that everyone could understand, he demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It tells us before the foundation of the world, it was already discussed. Read Revelation 13, verse 8. I think that's the verse. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before even Adam, before God even spoke the world into existence, there was already a plan. A rescue plan was already in motion because God knew that man would choose evil. In John chapter 21, remember, this is after his resurrection when he met his disciples up on the Galilee. It says this, Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you that when you were, and he's speaking to Peter here, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked about where you wished, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you did not wish. This he spoke, signifying by what death he would glorify God. 
Peter didn't want to be, uh, tradition tells us, it's not in the Bible, but tradition tells us that, G, or that Peter didn't want to be crucified the same way as his Lord because he didn't feel it worthy, himself worthy to be crucified the same way. He says, crucify me upside down. So they were glad to oblige. He was crucified upside down for the glory of God. I don't know about you, but that just strikes a chord in me that's like, man, I, I cry over spilt milk so much. <laughs> and I look at some of this stuff, Lord, strengthen my faith. Shore up that faith. Do something in this rock in my chest. Do something with it, God. And although martyrdom was God's will for some, God calls the rest of us to be living sacrifices. What does it tell us in Romans? I beseech you, Paul said, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, notice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's just reasonable to present our bodies a living sacrifice. This seems like a paradox, doesn't it? Because a sacrifice is something that's tied to the altar and is put to death, but God calls us to be living sacrifices. So that means that I've got to die to myself, die to my old nature, to live for Him. He wants me alive. Islam will be glad for you to take a C4 and strap it to a vest and blow up a marketplace. The God of Islam is a demon, and He wants His followers to blow people up, to be a sacrifice. And God says, no, I've already been this sacrifice. Thank you very much. It was once and for all. No need to do it again. Right? But we're to deny ourselves, right? We're to put off the old man, those things of the flesh, and put on the new man, which is Jesus Christ, right? And then be a living sacrifice. It's much harder to be a living sacrifice. Any coward can put on a vest and get loaded up on drugs and have somebody else detonate it remotely when he gets in the middle of a crowded area. Anybody, any coward could do that. Just load me up on fentanyl and take the remote and I'll be on my way. And I've got the promise of 70 virgins when I do go. Really? 70. That's what they teach. God would much rather have us be a living sacrifice, alive to glorify Him in and through our lives as He sees fit. So what is the benefit of our sickness or malady or calamity, whatever it is? At least, these are just a couple of suggestions, that God might be glorified in and through us in our weakness. He is strong. And secondly, that we may comfort others with the comfort that, gives, that, gives us, uh, that God gives us through whatever trial that is. And we're going to have to end here. Let me just read this one verse to you, and then we will have to stop there. You know, when you think about the things that you go through, again, there's a plan and a purpose behind it. It's not just happenstance. God very carefully chooses, and He knows where we're at. He knows what He can do, and He knows when we're ready. He knows you more than you can possibly understand. So when you feel like God has given me much more than I can take, that may be true, but He also knows something that you don't. He knows that He can sustain you if you would just surrender yourself when you're going through it. You know, there's a, there's a saying that, that's going around the church that's not really biblical, by the way. It, it, the phrase is, God wouldn't give me any more, than I can, any more than I can handle. That's not true. It's not true. In fact, I think God often allows us to be completely uh, um, consumed by things and, and, and puts us way over our head 
Because what do you do when you're drowning? You cry out for help. But when I can handle it, I'll never ask for help. I'll climb out of the pit myself and say, I don't need God, but when he puts us in over our head, all of a sudden, I am the first one to scream and put up the white flag and say, Lord, help me. And what does he do? He comes and helps you. So that phrase, God doesn't give you any more than you can handle. Sometimes he gives you a lot more to get you on your knees again, to get you on your knees and to get your eyes looking upward instead of at yourself and your own circumstances. We need to be looking to him, only him. There's nobody else who can help you and save you when God says, I can do this. In fact, I've, I've allowed this to happen to get you to the place where you'd stop looking at all of your credit cards, when you'd stop looking at all your doctors, where I am the only one. And when, you're, when he's the only one and you cry out to him, boy, he just runs like the prodigal, like the father running to the prodigal child. He will run to you and he will help you. He will save you. He will deliver you. Many of you know this through experience. I do myself as well. We're going to have to stop. There's a lot more. But this is good. This is good. How, do, how does God receive glory in the life of Lazarus? We're going to look at that more next week. And then we'll get into the real purpose of John 11, and that's the resurrection. I can't wait for that. But this is serious. This is, this is really good for us to consider because we live in it right now. We're living in it. People around us are suffering. Maybe you're suffering. You've got family members, friends, people that are, that are uh, very seriously ill. And they're asking themselves the same question as maybe you're asking, Lord, how, does, how can you be glorified in and through this? As a believer, how can you be, how can you be glorified in this? And as you're looking at others saying, Lord, how can you be glorified through this? It's a good question to ask. It's a good question to search your soul and say, Lord, how would you have me to respond now to this issue? Would you have me be like that child who doesn't get his way and is foaming at the mouth on the floor of the Walmart? Or do you want me to be the one who says, you know what, Lord? Though you slay me, I will trust you. I don't know what you're doing in this. I can't even see it. I don't understand it. It hurts. Nobody understands. I don't have any friends. People that I love have abandoned me, and all I've got is you. And God says, all you've got is me. <laughs> That's enough. But emotionally, honestly, we say, it's not enough. But God says, I know your frame. I know your dust. Will you cry out to me? Will you come to me? And begin to pray again and surrender your life and your heart afresh to me, even in this, and let me work through you. Let me work through you that we could be vessels of honor, of gold and silver, not wood and straw and stubble. We could be vessels of honor. Father, we just thank you for this... Um, this passage, and Lord, we pray that you would just continue to mature us, that you'd continue to grow us in this, Lord. It's very difficult, Lord. It's a very solemn topic. But Lord, you're in these things, and you want to teach us. 
Would you help us through this, Lord? May we glorify you in and through all things that occur in our life, the good things, giving you thanks and honor, and even during the bad things, the things that we perceive as bad that are difficult. Would you help us, Lord? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.